The year is 1409, and Bohemia is abuzz with the controversial teachings of popular preacher and teacher Jan Hus. Hus, who studied the teachings of John Wycliffe, believes he has rightly found many errors within the Catholic Church and is all too happy to tell them all about it. Like Wycliffe, he takes issues with financial corruption, indulgences, and transubstantiation. But it is his insistence that the church is the elect people of God, not merely the institution and offices headquartered in Rome, that proves to be his most dangerous claim. We talk about all things Jan Hus in this episode of Theology on Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air, and thank you for listening to this, our third episode of season four, A Look at the Reformers. We've talked about what led to the need for reform and who is often called the morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe. Even though Wycliffe died with his work receiving no small amount of scorn, his ideas would live on in his writings. He had no better student than Jan Hus, who picked up right where Wycliffe left off, and the legacy of Hus would continue right at 100 years after his death with Martin Luther. I'm Sarah Stone, Director of Community and Evangelistic Outreach at MDPC, and here with Evan McClanahan, Senior Pastor at First Lutheran in Midtown. And uh, so this is Theology on Air. Theology on Air was born out of our ministry, Theology on Tap, which is a ministry for young adults here in Houston where we drink craft beer and we talk about theology and philosophy and faith and culture, and it's a lot of fun. But uh, in this new series, we're going more in-depth on various subjects. This is the one on the Reformers, which is getting increasingly exciting, and we're learning really just how bad the Catholic Church was um, and needed reform. Sorry, Catholics. Well, who could blame them? I mean, no one was there to stop them, you know? Yeah. But if you like this, especially if you like this new series, if you have ideas for what we need to talk about, reach out. You can find out everything you need to know about our leadership and podcasts and future events at HoustonTOT.com. And as for the podcast, rate us, review us, and share with a friend um, so that we can grow and more people can learn about those wicked Catholics. I'm joking. We love our Catholic friends. But Catholics several hundred years ago were maybe a little bit of a different breed. So um, we're here to talk about this guy that some of us may have never heard of until this moment. I certainly had heard of him. Wink, wink. I'm going to admit that I had not. Jan Hus. Who is this guy? Yeah, and Jan Hus is the Bohemian way to say his name. By the uh, way, Bohemia so, is yep. modern-day Czech Republic. Yeah. In case you didn't know that either, I Googled it for you because I'm a giver that way. All of these, uh, <laughs> you know, nations that as they exist today, of course, didn't really exist in the same way in the past. So it was yeah. kind of sort of – you kind of have regions and like loca- local princes and things. But if you go to Prague today – uh, mm-hmm. And you go to the beautiful downtown area and you cross the lovely bridge there. Um, you will see a massive, uh, you know, sculptor of Jan Hus right in the middle of that big kind of mm. public courtyard. So he is very much, you know, other than maybe Charles the Fourth, who was, you know, around this time as well, the most famous bohemian. And he is loved by his by his countrymen um, oh, for cool. what he did. Although at some point I'm uh, guessing he wasn't loved by everyone. Well, we'll get to yeah, that. right. Yeah. But he, uh, but only about 2% of the country today of, of the Czech Republic today is Protestant. Hmm. So he really didn't have that yeah, kind of a, the a lasting. legacy. Yeah. But that's probably because, well, <clears throat> crusades were literally launched against Huss's followers, which we'll get to at the very end of okay, today. Okay. So we're just going to say like last time where we went Wycliffe, Wycliffe, 
This time we're right. going to huss and hoose all over the place. So John Huss <laughs> is the English way people would have heard his name. I'm going to try to say Jan Hus just to be, just to remind us all of his proximity, right? You know, this is the bohemian way to say his name because I do think proximity kind of matters, you know. The, the what do you bohe- mean when you say proximity? Like, like wh- further they, west or something? Yeah, where they were on the continent. And, okay. You know, and as I said with England, I think the further away you are from Rome, you, right. know, you tend to have a little bit more freedom. Yeah. And so Bohemia is a little bit further than, say, what we would call Germany. You know? Yeah. So it's it's to the east there. But, um, but I want to begin with what I think is the central issue that Hus ends up dealing with, which is the definition of the church. And okay. I think kind of where you come down on that kind of determines everything else. And so I just want to read this, and then I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning and do more introductory things. But let me just read this. The church is the number of all the elect in the mystical body of Christ, whose head Christ is, and the bride of Christ, whom of his great love he redeemed with his own blood. Now, if that doesn't sound very controversial, it's because, take your drink, you live in a post-Reformation world. Didn't we determine this was a... Yes, that's the thing that Evan likes to say in this series, that, yeah... Now, and when we say when we say drink, I have ice water and she has diet coke. So you know we're not we're not encouraging drunkenness, even though we are theology on top. I'm I know that is a (laughs) diet coke. Um, But Hus, okay, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Hus lived seven thirteen seventy three to fourteen fifteen. As a reminder, the three popes situation, which we talked about last time, the Great Schism, began in thirteen seventy seven, four years after he was born, and ended really in fourteen seventeen. So two years after he died. So his entire life basically was during this reign of of three popes. So weird, yeah. And it is weird, and you end up with situations where, say, the king of Bohemia supports one lineage of popes, but the Mm -hmm. church supports another. I I mean, and so you have these different lines and different. It was it was really really quite quite bizarre. Um, no, I say I said three popes. I may have been wrong about that. I think the three popes may have only been for five years. I should know this because every. But either this, way, but there's more than one. There's more than one. So that's a for, problem, right? If it's supposed to be basically like God's words on earth kind right. of deal. Let me read a little bit. I did read a book by David Schaff for this. Uh, it's called John Huss: His Life, Teachings, and Death After Five Hundred Years. It was published in 1915 because um, hmm. he died in 1415. Mm-hmm. David Schaff happens to be the son of Peter Schaff, who's a very who's kind of written what many people consider to be the the church history. Hmm. Uh, so uh, anyway, there's an interesting history in and of itself. But um, let me just read this. He says, "It is doubtful if we accept the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ, whether the forward movement of religious enlightenment and human freedom have been advanced as much by the sufferings and death of any single man." as by the death of Hus. Wow. Or Hus. Um, so his argument is that Hus was so influential, and he died. Now, Luther didn't die. Calvin didn't die. So arguably, if they're, they had they died... Are, they did die. Well, yeah, they did die. <laughs> okay, they're not Thank like <laughs> taken up like Enoch or something. Right, right. No, they they, they did indeed die. But they were not... They, they were not um, martyred. Martyred for the cause. So so Hus is, is extremely, uh, you know, in the, in the eyes of this author, you know, Influential uh, down through the centuries. Um, what was, again, the context? Quick reminder, we did kind of two episodes already about context, but I want to read a little bit of what this author highlights. Mm-hmm. This, was a, this, is a, this is about power, I would argue, at the end of the day. This is about who has the right to judge what is true, what is wrong. I'm glad we don't you struggle know. with that today. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. Well, I think we have our own 
mega state in a way that we have to contend with because that's kind of what he what you know what you had to go up against if you were going against the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. They had supreme authority. So for example, Gregory, Pope from 1073 to 1085, solemnly allow, announced that the state had its origin in evil, greed and ambition, cruelty, plunder and murder. Jeez. All right. So the the Pope is setting things up to like where look the state is just it just does evil things like everything it does is evil but we are the enlightened church and you can trust us basically mm-hmm. and Unum Sanctum was uh, written by Boniface the third this was a massive uh, kind of world changing way of understanding church and state so let me read a little bit about what he says the Unum Sanctum. Uh, decreed that in the power of the church lay the two swords, the spiritual and the material. The spiritual is to be used by the church, the material for the church, and Mm. at its nod. Okay, so meaning that the church has the sole authority over the spiritual lives of human beings, right? And the material sword is for the church, right? So basically society is to benefit the church. Yeah. Right? And, and it's kind of to be used at our, our pleasure. Um, so this, this was a decree that changed the relationship or cemented it, uh, you know, in a way that, that ultimately the reformers were working to undo. Yeah. Um, Boniface declared that for the salvation of every human creature, it is altogether necessary that each subject or each be subject to the Roman pontiff. So it couldn't be more clear. Right? Yeah. Like you want to go to heaven, heaven goes through me. Yeah. Right. Um, there's there's no salvation outside of the church. We talked about this last time. That's what Augustine says, to which we would agree. Depending on your definition of church. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the that's the 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 sort of the the the, the nexus of, of this whole thing. Well, same with this idea of the material sword. I mean, <clears throat> I'm not saying that like sort of the military should be under the rule of church, but that in society Various things like use of force or whatever should be used to protect the things that God wants to protect, mm-hmm. right? So if the church is, I don't know, capital C, little c, which one, whatever one you're using to say those that follow Christ, then that sounds lovely and ideal. Obviously, we, we can't have that today in, in the kind of plural world we live in, but I could see how the church could get there if they were thinking of the church in the way that Jan Hus was thinking of it, which they weren't. Right. I mean, yeah. And in, in an ideal world, it's it's not impossible to imagine that the Christian church is worthy of, you know, adoration and respect, that it that it behaves itself in such a way that is above reproach and, you know, and clear about what it's trying to do, and that there couldn't be some governing institutions that supported it in some way. You know, yeah. I think you could, I think we could say that. Um, well, if laws are supposed to um, direct or correct morality, and we have a, I mean, we have a standard for morality, right? And then we have a book that kind of explains how that ought to be played out. Yeah. Kind of makes sense. I realize this is like in a utopia where everyone agrees right, right. where morality comes from. And anyway, not to derail us too much. but yeah. No, no, absolutely. I, I mean, those are the kinds of questions that these, that when you look at the reformers, that should come up. Questions mm-hmm. of authority, questions of law, questions of origin of the rightness or wrongness of a thing. And ultimately, mm-hmm. what you have over and over is that the church continues to absolutely insist uh, that its authority and its, you know, definition of right and wrong comes from its historical, institutional, uh, traditional, tr- yeah. traditional existence. Yeah. 
Yeah. Not from it, it's making power claims and authority claims, you know, based on its past. Right. Not, not on its, scripture. Not on and... scripture. Not on its spiritual authority. Yeah. And so um, it it really confused these different realms, these different kingdoms, and even if something like the two kingdoms doctrine, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, when we talk about Luther is a little bit overwrought. It's hard mm-hmm. not to see how important and necessary it was. It wasn't it wasn't because the state was telling Christians what to do. It was because the church was telling citizens yeah. what to do. And so you had to kind of pull back and say, "Hey, you know, there there God established these two kingdoms or these two realms or whatever you want to call it for for good reason." Yeah. You know. Let me read this. Um the battle or this bull, Unum Sanctum, was a battleground of discussion for the next two centuries. And its twofold assertion, uh, the bomb, which helped to shatter the medieval theory of authority. Wycliffe, Huss, Huss, and other writers referred to it again and again to contest its truth and to contemn its audacity. Basically, that was a that was a bomb, you know, like he said, that that had kind of gone off, and the work of the reformers was going to be to try to undo that. And I'm not even sure that they really succeeded ultimately without a lot of violence. You know, you look mm. at the Thirty Years' War, you look at the Hussite Wars, which we'll talk about, peasants' revolts. Uh, there was a lot of really horrible things that happened, you know, I think in this effort to give ordinary people some of their lives back, Yeah, if, if you could put it that way. Hmm. Um, what is a heretic? I think it's important to understand. When we think of a, her- a heretic as someone who essentially parades false doctrine, mm-hmm. and that is... Also the truth, you know, also the case with Huss and Luther, et cetera. The problem was that the church was this insular, circular institution right. which determined what doctrine even was or what dogma even was. There was no sort of recourse. And so let it just be said that Huss was a heretic, okay, that Wycliffe, Wycliffe was a heretic, that Luther was a heretic, okay, as the Because they defined. went against what right. the church said was, yeah, okay. Right. So I think that that is just something that we need to understand, um, that it wasn't that they were not heretics, it's that the standard of the day had to be changed. The whole ground had to be shifted. Yeah. That's what they were up against. I, I just want to keep illustrating that because their hard work has allowed us to live, you know, in the world that we do. We talked last time about the donation of Constantine. This was the the document supposedly from the Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine, to give the Pope at the time... I think his name was Sylvester, um, sort of domain, the domain of the Roman Empire upon his death. Well, that was a forgery, and that was later mm-hmm. proven, published mm-hmm. in 1517. But there were other forgeries, many other forgeries, that also did lesser things, but similar. And so the Isidorian decreals is something that would have been in the milieu of, of, of Hus as well. This was a series of forgeries that claimed to be from popes that established authority in many areas of life. So okay. basically, say, powerful popes of the past, like Gregory the Seventh or something, you know, had said, oh, popes have the right to do this, and popes have the right to do that. And it just became sort of something that wasn't questioned, and that wasn't, you know, that, that was... You end up basically with popes with just tremendous power. It yeah. wasn't just that one document is all I'm trying to right. say. Right, okay. Um, and so by the time, again, of the reformers, they're, they're really coming against a brick wall. Let me read this. This is a good summary, really, of where Hus and Wycliffe both ended up. This is why they got into trouble. They contested the proposition that what the visible church teaches must be believed because the church teaches it. 
They turned away from an infallible pope and an infallible visible church to the living Christ, Hmm. who rules personally in the hearts of believers and in the scriptures. So that is the fight. I just yeah. to, just to lay the groundwork, you know, as clearly as possible. That is the fight. Wycliffe and Hus are fighting a visible church that believed that was the kingdom of God on earth, and they are fighting for the right of the believer to have their to have Christ be their Lord mm-hmm. more than more so than the church. You know, if those things can work together as they are supposed to, you know, hey, great. But, yeah, I was going to say, you, I can see people now the pendulum shifting so far the other way that people will say, "Well, I don't need the church at all." It's just Jesus and me. We make our decisions and, you know. Right. Yeah, like the church doesn't have any claim on me. I don't need oh, to go. I don't need to yeah. do anything. I don't need to be a part no, of we, that. No, we live, uh, those of us who would who would um, sometimes use the phrase evangelical Catholics about ourselves, which is to say little c Catholics, right? Yeah, like um, the kind of Catholic that's in the Apostles' Creed. Exactly. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Exactly. So yeah. those of us who want to be a part of... Um, of the true church, you know, of of the truly unbroken apostolic chain, mm-hmm. not through the laying on of hands of individuals per se, but through the spiritual inheritance mm-hmm. of what the apostles began and what we are now inheriting. That there, that is the invisible church yeah. that has always existed and will always exist. Those of us who believe that, you know, we do often find ourselves though in a situation where you have something like anti-clericalism right, would be the technical term for it. This idea that, well, nothing good ever came from clergy, you know, right. nothing ever good came from organization or, uh, right. you know, institutionalization, et cetera. So institutions are not bad things, but... Necessarily. Necessarily. Yeah. But yeah, so you have to draw those those proper lines. This is an interesting little um, tidbit, that, just as a reminder that indulgences were around. We talked about that. Remind us. I mean, if someone's listening to this one without the other one, just a quick reminder, what so are an, indulgences? An indulgence is basically something the church sold to get out of purgatory soon. It, 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 it's it's buying the forgiveness of sins in advance, essentially. And um, they sort of get worse. In Luther's day, they were actually quite disgusting. But as this is just, again, from the book, uh, the poverty, or I'm sorry, the, the piety uh, and the poverty of Hus are attested by his purchase of a pardon at the sale of indulgences at the Wizenrod in the Prague Jubilee year 1393. Okay, you're going to have to break this down because even as I'm listening, I'm like, so he bought something for the... Like- he bought indulgences in Prague in, in the year 1393. Okay. And what's interesting is we have a record of that. You know, so so we know that he did he he says that or maybe he it's from his own writings he says that he spent his last four pennies in purchasing the certificate of forgiveness so Aww. this is where this is just a snapshot right yeah. of kind of daily life you know you know you're walking through Prague and someone's selling indulgences you got four pennies to your name and it's like well I am a little bit worried about my salvation jeez because the finished work of Christ is not made apparent right right and so he himself purchased such um, indulgences. Man. He was known as a great preacher. Um, he comes from a kind of line of great preachers. This is one of those moments in church history where, where the, the spirit kind of seems to pop up, you mm-hmm. know? As we talked about last time, Wycliffe was also considered to be a, a good, if not great, preacher, and he valued preaching. Mm-hmm. But that was not the culture at the time. The right. culture at the time was tell little ditties about saints and yeah. popes who lived before. Not really to expose the word because we don't want the people to be exposed to the word. Yeah. Which is why they <laughs> had issues with translation uh, of it into English and in later in Hus's day into the Czech language. Hmm. 
So uh, there was this Bethlehem Chapel in Prague that was it, it doesn't exist anymore, but you get the impression it, there's this separation from the church in some way. It's a it's a church institution, but it was like a preaching house. Okay. Um, I don't know that sacraments were performed there, but okay. it was a, a it was a religious you know it was a it was a Catholic religious institution in some way, and um, you you do find that there were a few people prior to Hus who were really well known preachers and what what this author calls popular sensations. Okay, it sounds like you're selling a greatest hits album or yeah, something yeah. almost right. But let me just read this: Conrad, for example, Conrad of Waldhausen. An Austrian belonging to the Augustinian order settled in Prague at the invitation of Charles IV. By the way, if you go to Prague, Charles IV stuff is everywhere. He, oh, is, he is highly, highly regarded as like the greatest king yeah. of all time. Um, he preached there until 1369. His sermons were a popular sensation. They <laughs> soon emptied the churches of the mendicant orders. Uh-oh. Remember the mendicants were who? They was, these were the monastic orders that took vows of poverty that Wycliffe preached against. Mm-hmm. And he kind of came to fame for preaching against these, the, the way that they were actually quite wealthy as orders, but all of their monks went around begging. Yeah. And so they weren't contributing to society. They, they went they around They weren't begging. working for money. They weren't working. Yeah. yeah. And so as a preacher, this guy, he, He's poaching. He's poaching big time. He was a preacher of repentance and righteousness. He attacked spiritual pride, avarice, luxury, usury, and other sins. The effect of his sermons was shown in many changed lives. Sounds like John the Baptist. Very much so. Did he go around saying brood of vipers? I don't know, but I I can't believe he didn't use that text for sure. (laughs) Um, So as an example, scores of fallen women... You know, did Fallen penance women. and re- renounced their former mode of life. Is this prostitutes? Um, Is that just a nice way of well, saying? Well, probably. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to get to that later because at at well, I will. I'll, I'll I'll come back to that. Okay. But uh, so just to say, there are other there are these there were there was this tradition where the Bible was really powerfully being preached, and it was seems to just have happened in Prague, and Hus is kind of at the. I don't say the end of that line, but there were others who had gone before him. And this is what is said about him. He says this, his messages burn with zeal for pure religion and Mm. with sympathy for men. With his whole heart, he was a preacher. This is not about Hus at this moment. No, this is Hus now. This is now. Okay. I'm sorry. I've skipped ahead a little bit. That's okay. Um, But, you know, these people, they, they loved the scripture. They wanted people to know the scripture. They wanted people to hear the scripture. They were essentially what it was essentially what we would call a period of revival. Yeah. You know, yeah, I yeah. mean, that really is the context where, you know, we would say the spirit really is working in the lives of these of these preachers to to really powerful, powerfully bring people into a real relationship with God, yeah. the living God. Well, the institutional church, I mean, I mean, it's hard to say that they want that. Yeah. It it is it is in in no way do you see that that's actually what they even want. They seem to just want control, money, power over politics. Mm-hmm. And like they're okay with a sacramental relationship to the person, which is a kind of way of keeping an arm's length, hmm. uh, you know, from from God, but still in God's good graces. And, Only if you pay and go to confession well, sure. and do all the Yeah, things. if you do yeah. all the things, exactly. Uh, in Bohemia, the very names Wycliffeite, and Wycliffeist were given to dissenters to indicate the extent of his influence. Uh, in Bohemia, Wycliffe was called the fifth evangelist. So hmm. Wycliffe was a known guy. His teachings were well-known and very popular. 
Yeah. So, um, in case in, the fifth evangelist is after Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Bach is sometimes also called the fifth evangelist. <laughs> Luther is sometimes called the fifth evangelist. So I'm up to seven by by <laughs> now, right? I want to tell this story. Um, take a little narrative break here, okay? Because again, I think that this helps to shed a light on what daily life would have been like for the average Christian at this time. There was a relic that was said to have the powers of miracles. What what were relics? Relics were an, a, a very popular everyday part of the everyday life of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of Christians. They're still around in the Catholic yeah. Church. They're still relics. It's essentially the uh, the 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 body part of a saint or the part of the cross of Jesus' tree or a drop of Christ's blood or... Some the, material thing that was very close to, belonged to... A holy person. Yeah. If in in, in 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 you can go visit it, say a prayer in its presence. This was in fact one of the main ways people uh, received indulgences. If they couldn't pay, they would go to reliquies, reliquaries, collections mm. of relics, and and they would get out of purgatory that way as well. So you could earn, you can still earn indulgences. That's and, so and, and, crazy. In fact, in the Catholic Church, you cannot buy them anymore, but you can earn them. Um, I think it, like it makes me think of museums that we go to where maybe you see like a mummy or something. Can you imagine seeing something like get down on their knees and start praying to something that's on a museum? Right. Yeah, um, but that's exactly what it would have been like. Yeah, um, and a lot of these were gross. I mean, it like was you said like, body parts. What do you mean? Like cut off a finger of Saint Paul yes. and someone has it like in a baggie somewhere? Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, I think. Uh, you know, for example, the two the two strangest I'm I'm familiar with are the foreskin of Jesus. Oh boy! And the breast milk of Mary. You know those thi- those <laughs> things. Cl- I'm just saying. You know those things claim to exist, and people believed in them. Um, let me re- let me read this. The popular strength of the movement in the direction of the reform of church abuses found hopeful expression in the Archbishop's Act of appointing a commission of which Hus was a member to investigate the alleged miraculous qualities of the holy blood of Christ exhibited at Wilsnack or Wilesnack, wherever it was. Who's to say? Yeah. Who's? Oh, sorry. That was good. I missed that. Uh, The relic was first shown in 1383 and attracted throngs of pilgrims from Bohemia, Hungary, and other parts of Europe. Uh, In its day, it was probably the most famous object of devotion in Central Europe. So you're talking about a claim that this is the blood of Christ, right? Preserved through the centuries. People made pilgrimages for dozens or hundreds of miles to come see it, uh, in part because they would earn something for it, you know? It's ironic that they would travel so far for the blood of Christ when they also believed that the communion wine turned into the blood of Christ and you could have it next door. Well, interestingly, they couldn't um, because it was withheld for all those centuries. Remember, that was the two types. bread only. But that said... You know the idea is very much the same, which, mm-hmm. which is that in the in, I mean they allowed the 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 Catholic Church said well you can fully receive communion even if you don't have both kinds yeah. or both elements so you know this distinction between kind of body and blood is it gets I think to a degree it gets silly at some point I mean people have literally said well doesn't the communion wine have to be red because it becomes it's like well no it has to be wine yeah <clears throat> I we do offer grape juice I'm not a big I'm not a big fan, um, but but you but, also have wine. But we, yeah, I've for taken sure. communion at our church, and it was 100 percent wine. Yeah, in yeah. fact, it's port. Um, if you must know. So okay, so so Hus investigates this, and his argument is that mm, I don't think this is the real deal. Yeah. I, I think there's some deception going on. I don't think it's the real deal. In that, I don't really think it's Christ's blood, or even if it is, that's not how. 
this whole thing works. I I think he would say straight up, this is not Christ's blood. There's okay. no and the, and the miraculous claims. It, it was like a debunking of a psychic, right? Where it's like right. they were plants. You know, I, I don't know how how far they went, but um, let me just say I'll read this. The second argument that Hus in this report after the investigation made. That the alleged miracles performed at Wilesnack were deceptions upon the basis of the testimony of persons reported to have been cured. So it it comes across like this: Hey, we're going to follow up with people who mm-hmm. are supposedly claimed, right? Just like the guy that falls down at the Benny Hinn thing, and we're right, going right. to find out if they were really cured. And what who's found out is no, they weren't. Right. Um, or they so, were never sick to begin with, or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but in spite of the commission commission's report. Hus's tract in Zibnek's decree, that was, I think, the prince at the time who said, go away, fake, you know, relic. The relic continued <laughs> doing its mission of deceiving the unwary for more than a century. Jeez. So it's just, that's just a little uh, vignette to, to kind of talk about the the way that relics were used, uh, how prolific they were, and how deceived the people were, and how, therefore, much further they were from trusting in the finished work of Christ. Yeah. There are all these other things that are going, these superstitious, weirdo, authoritative things going on in the church. Well, and that still happens today. There's some Mm -hmm. bias. I can't, it's something similar to confirmation bias, but where if you hear, you know, decent, reasonable evidence to the contrary of what you believe, you'll actually just double down and Mm. just kind of even get more staunchly into your wrong belief. Yeah. yeah, people people like that. I mean, the, the psychic thing is a great example. So many psychics have been disproved. Right. Anyway. Well, it's, it's, it's like the sunk cost fallacy, right? I've already yeah. gone down this far and I want it to be true. Or or there's an emotional commitment. Yeah. Where, you know, I need my I need to be able to contact my dead relative. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna believe something that there are warning signs is Almost not true. Almost placebo. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Trouble begins for, for Hus uh in about 14 or 1408 or so. Let me read this as a kind of a good summary. Uh, so prominently identified was Hus with these new doctrines, which are now, the doctrines are assim- essentially, essentially uh, uh, let me give one more quick example. There was another relic that was said to be real, which was the fragments of the cross. Hmm. Uh, let me just read this. The fragments of the cross, which the piety of the Middle Ages revered as genuine, came to be so numerous that Clement V solemnly proclaimed the dogma of the multiplication of the wood of the sacred tree. Multiplication? What do you mean? The wood had babies. Okay. Yeah. So, As wood does. In, in other words, if you add up all the wood from the sacred cross on which Christ was crucified, you know, if you could actually go yeah. to all the reliquaries and put it all together, the cross would be, you know, the size Gigantic. of... Gigantic. You know, yeah. So, like in the Gospel of Thomas. So basically, it's like, Sorry. well... Well, it just it just miraculously, you know, is still growing or something. Or it's like it's a mustard irritated. seed. Yeah. So eventually, who's his, um, you know, he's he's saying, you know, something is something stinks yeah. here in Denmark, but we're not in Denmark. But you get the mm-hmm. idea. Uh, so there were charges that in the Bethlehem Chapel, remember that's this preaching mm-hmm. house, mm-hmm. before a large audience made up of men and women that. Uh, he had declared at variance with the teachings of the fathers that it was a sin for the priest to take money for burials and celebrating the sacraments. So this is part of what Hus is now starting to say. He's like, you know, you priests are out here making money. Like you won't do a um, – in fact, if you watch that Wycliffe movie, and mentioned it's kind of, kind of lame, but it's on YouTube. And, it's kind of lame, but you should watch it. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a scene where a priest won't do a service unless it's for money. So this was a very common problem. 
where the priests essentially were not serving the people out of love for Christ as his true vicar uh, and representative, but rather they were constantly taking money for the sacraments and for burials. And for poor people, this was a problem because it yeah. then left their family members without the church's blessing in this most dire rights, time which, of need. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so eventually, Hus is speaking more and more um, strongly mm-hmm. against these corruptions in the church. And uh, the the Pope starts to sort of, over time, take notice. Remember that this is during the time of the papal schism, or schism. Bohemia, interestingly, choose, chose the, the Roman Pope, or it had to, let me say, it had to choose between the Roman Pope and the Avignon Pope. Charles IV chose Rome, and it seems like Hus did too. So mm, just okay. what a weird, what a weird time to be alive, right? Yeah. So around 1410... Uh, you now have three popes. Again, I think it was about four, five to seven years you had three popes. Let me just read this. There are now three popes, each having his own college of cardinals, and the spectacle was seen at Prague of two lines being acknowledged. The Pizan line, that's, you had a one from Pisa, Italy. The Pizan line by the king and Gregory Twelfth of the Roman uh, line by the archbishop. Threatened by a mob, Zibnik uh, put the city under interdict and retired for a season. I think that Zibnik maybe was the archbishop. And he carried with him the treasures from the trypt of St. Wenceslaus in St. Vita's oh. Cathedral. Wenceslaus was a yeah common name, and so that whole thing comes from this part of the world. But you have, you have this split in the church um, in, in Bohemia. And, uh, wait, wait. So the three popes were from where? France? Rome, Avignon, France, Rome, and where the leading town of Pisa I, I, is? I think Pisa. Yeah, I okay. think Pisa. But I don't... So Italy had two? I believe Italy had two. Calm down, Italy. Yeah. Goodness. Don't get and, and And one of them was really so horribly scandalous, and I'll read a few of the charges against all these popes, but... Um, so inter- as a side note, one the, the, the last one, I believe who is elected, but he refused, but the other two don't go away. Mm-hmm. So that's how you end up with three. So that guy elected, he takes the name John the 23rd. Okay. Now, John the 23rd might sound familiar because John the 23rd is the name of the Pope who convened the Vatican, Second Vatican Council in the 1950s. Hmm. I think it was officially held 1960 to sixty. So he almost said that to like spite the fact that that other one wasn't real. It's basically because this one... This John the twenty third and fourteen. He's pointing whatever, to his papers about John Yahoos. Yeah. yeah. He 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 is uh declared an anti pope in the twentieth oh. century. So the name becomes available. <laughs> yeah. It's like Sorry. yeah. Um, it's like a domain name on the World Wide Web. Yeah, yeah. It's like that. Yeah. Exactly like that. And so so yeah, John the twenty third becomes available. And I'm gonna redeem this horrible mm-hmm. mark in our history of this particular pope. Okay. And interestingly, that pope ends up later in the same prison as Jan Hus. Let me tell one more little anecdote about how crazy this time was as well. And let me just read it. One of those who had participated in the clamor for the cremation, uh, and this is the the burning of of Wycliffe. Uh, Wycliffe's... um, Bones. No, that comes later. I'm sorry. His books. Oh, oh, okay. um, Was the rector of St. Aegidius, Aegidius, Peter of Peclo, who affirmed he had descended to hell and seen Wycliffe there. Oh, wait, uh, wait, wait, what? Yeah, Sorry. true story, true story. 
a fancy in regard to which John of Gizin plausibly remarked that there were no other witnesses, for, and for this reason, if no other, the de- deposition was a preposterous lie. All I'm saying is <laughs> you had witnesses to whether or not Wycliffe's writing should be burned. Uh-huh. And one guy was like, well, I went to hell and I saw him there, so... Wow. Yeah. So is he Jesus now? Isn't it good that we live in a post Reformation world? You know, <laughs> taking my last. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so they did. They did end up burning Wycliffe's books, and so you now including scripture, right? Because he translated. I mean, is that counted as I, his books or not? I I don't know if his English Bibles were. I doubt that. But okay. no. So I, I I doubt they would have done that. But his other writings, yeah. and, and and so on and so forth. Um. So it it was it was pretty bad, and to be a Wycliffist was to be a heretic because mm-hmm. Wycliffe was a heretic, as we've already talked about. Right? Not actually, but yeah, but, but yes, them. technically. So eventually, Huss is summoned now to the Pope, and uh, neither letters from the Queen and the King and other persons high in position, nor the solicitations of the King's personal representatives at the papal court, were sufficient to procure a withdrawal of modification of the summons. Anyway, just to show. The king and the queen write in his favor, but that doesn't withdraw the summons. He's still summoned eventually to the papal court to uh, to explain himself. Here are we're, so we're now kind of moving into the later part of his life where he's put under trial, and I, I want to read some summaries of what he believed because I think this is really kind of gets to the heart of the matter. This is a quote from Hus. He said. I said that with my whole heart I am minded to obey the apostolic mandates and to obey them in all points. But what I call the apostolic mandates are the doctrines of Christ's apostles. And so far as the mandates of the Roman pontiff are in accord with the apostolic mandates and doctrine, that is, according to the rule of Christ, so far I intend most certainly to obey them. Mm -hmm. But if I find them to be at variance... I will not obey them, even if you put before my eyes fire for the burning of my body. And he was he was given many opportunities over the course of his trial to recant, and mm-hmm. he was encouraged by most of his friends to take it all back, mm. that he could spare his life, because he knew what was coming. He knew Jeez. that he would be burned alive, and um, and he never did. So he's, I don't know if I can say this, but he's kind of, he's a bad dude, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> he's, kinda, he's a rock star. He's a rock star. Wow. So that's a that's a summary of some of what he says. This is kind of getting now then to the to the conflict. Uh, he says this as well. Sins are to be remitted without money and without price. Um. Prayer, fasting, and other good works. The bulls make no mention of only money. Why does the Pope not have refuge in prayer rather than in gold and silver? Hmm. Uh, you mentioned... Um, we were talking before about what is a bull. It's just a papal decree. Uh, yeah, but it's um, B-U-L-L. B-U-L-L, Yeah, and so the the maybe the, much, arguably most of them were just a bunch of bull. Yeah, 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 that is for sure. And maybe the most famous is uh, there was a papal bull against Luther, which uh, I think that was the bull of excommunication in fifteen twenty one, which he burned uh, kind of in a public bonfire. Um, so that's what that's what funny. Luther thought of that. Um, again, let me let me read this. Uh, this is kind of a loud, a long section, but it's a good summary. From the standpoint of the teachings of the church in that age, he certainly was a heretic. He had chosen another foundation for his theology than the medieval and papal system. He planted himself firmly on the scriptures as the supreme authority in matters of faith and conduct. He held the teaching of free grace and Christ's immediate forgiveness, and thus set himself against the medieval dogma of penance and the necessity of priestly intervention. 
He denied the Pope's infallibility. He insisted that pardon for sin was not to be bought with money, all papal bulls to the contrary. He enunciated the principle of the lordship of conscience. He asserted preaching to be the chief function of the priesthood. To which I'm like, amen. And I'll yeah, 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 yeah. That's like his thesis, magnum right. opus. Right. Let's look at perhaps his most famous, um, by the way, uh, as a result of him doing all that, he is put under threat of excommunication. Uh, he is essentially banned uh, from having anything to do with the church, uh, public and private, at meat and drink and conversation in buying and selling. Uh, he is to have no contact with the faithful at all in all those those ways I was reading there. So he was to be refused all hospitality, fire, and water. Shunned. He was to be shunned. So he was a vagabond on the earth, deprived of all means of livelihood and of all human aid. Jeez. For, for, for you know, for saying what he did. Um, let me skip ahead a, a little bit because I do want to get to his treatise on the church, with which if anyone um, read anything by him in the contemporary world, I would say try to read that. Okay. Uh, you can find it for free as a PDF. I put it into my like text to 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 read app. Yeah, you know, so the computer voice read John Hus. It back read to me. it like this. Yeah, it was a little uh, annoying, <laughs> but but it, it is out there, and it wouldn't be hard to find. Or I'm sure you can buy it in book form somewhere. Or if you pay us enough, we will read it to you. Yes, and then yeah. forgive your sins. You know, for <laughs> that. Let me. I'm, I'm trying to. Okay, here we go. So here are three main points from his treatise on the church. Which was essentially what was used against him at trial. But wait, wait. Yes. So he had already said all this other stuff about, I'm going to follow what the Bible says, and if that matches papal stuff, great. But if not, I'm going with the Bible. Mm-hmm. And he said the thing about, don't be paying for, you know, pardon from sin. Right. And that all of that got him in trouble enough that he was basically shunned, practically excommunicated, right. or maybe excommunicated. Right. I mean, functionally excommunicated. If he can't spend any money, then he can't spend money on indulgences. Right. So, okay, so that all had happened, and now he's still at it, right. coming back with more hot fire right. for the church. And back to this two types thing, um, this two types of, at the the two elements of communion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this was a major issue as well at his trial, because he argued that the people should receive both bread and wine. Okay. And uh, let me read again from this book. It says, the custom was justified by the shrewdest that is the custom of only giving the bread to the people now okay. for several centuries. It was justified by the shrewdest sophistry of which the medieval theologians were capable, from Alexander of Hales, who died in uh, 1245 down. Uh, once fixed by ecclesiastical considerations, the attempt was made to justify it by scriptural authority. The best that could—I mean, and how do you do that? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus clearly institutes Just with bread and wine. Just say those two pages are stuck together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but Thomas Aquinas, some people's favorite theologian these days, uh, the best that could be done from this standpoint was done by Aquinas, who recalled that Christ distributed bread to the 5,000, but not drink. Well— that okay. isn't where he instituted the Lord's Supper. Right. You know, yeah. so we don't eat fish at the Lord's Supper either. Also, you know? we don't know that they weren't drinking at that just because it's not in the story. Right. I'm sure there was some water around. So it's like, but you just see the depth. Right, that, right, right. You see what's going on. It's like you have these pretty outlandish claims over and over again and the, the depths to which the church is going to justify it. And, and by the way, as a, it is a truism that you can justify anything you want to believe by tearing the Bible apart and I piecing it back I was literally going to say, so. just wait until one of our future podcast series will... Yes, everyone exactly. is trying to find ways that the Bible says what they want it to say. Yeah. Yeah. 
Three major points, or maybe four, about the treatise of the church. One, the universal church is the totality of the predestinate. Okay, that language of predestination we associate mm-hmm. with Calvin. Well, mm-hmm. it was major. That's what Wycliffe said. Wycliffe said was the was the the church, and that's mm-hmm. why I read the definition of the church at the beginning of this podcast. It yeah. was it had to be that had to be said, and that has to be clear that they are defining the church in a fundamentally different way. I would argue in the biblical way, mm-hmm. apart from how the Roman Catholic Church defined the church, and that makes all the difference. Yeah. Everything flows from that. Uh, two, only followers of Christ in this life can be called Christ's vicars. Let me stop. The Pope is said to be the vicar of Christ. Okay. Vicar as in vicarious. As oh, in, yeah, yeah. Right? Like as in he is in on the stead of behalf. Christ. He yeah. is not only on his behalf, but he can actually speak infallibly, right, when he speaks on matters of faith and morals, which is still a dogma of the Catholic Church yeah. that you must believe if you are Roman Catholic in good standing. It's not an option. But just to clarify also, in like the UK still, they use the word vicar. Right. And that's not just for the Pope or people that think they're standing in the stead of Jesus or something. Yeah. It's like a mm-hmm. term that means like pastor. Right, right. Can. It's, right. Like and, my, and, and in my – my, I would be – I'll have to ask Patrick this when we talk about the English Reformation. My guess is that the vicar uh, actually is subordinate to like the bishop, the archbishop, or the mm-hmm. rector even of that parish. You know, because within a parish, I think the head priest is the rector, but then under that you have vicars. So yeah. I may be wrong about that, but my guess is that – I mean to a degree – and, and as Hus is going to say, it's the concept of vicarage is not totally wrong. Yeah, it's it's when it's exclusively designated the Pope in the way that it is. So let me let me yeah, start over now going. that I've said that. Sorry, no, no, no. It was I needed to explain that word vicar because if yeah. you don't know Roman Catholic theology, you may not know that the Pope calls himself a vicar of Christ. So it says only only followers of Christ in this life can be called Christ victors, and that is and that if the supposed vicar walks in other ways, he is the messenger of antichrist Boom. so in other words the average christian can be a vicar of christ mm-hmm. right in the sense that we say the same things as christ we mm-hmm. imitate christ as paul says we follow do. him we follow little him. christ's yeah exactly Try to be. hands and feet of christ all that kind of stuff but if the supposed vicar of christ does things other than what christ says to do then he's actually antichrist mm-hmm. and again we're not talking about you know bad horror movies we're talking right. about literally doing the opposite of christ right. against yeah he talked about how the papal uh dignity had been deprived from the caesars now remember, Jan Hus is writing at the time where the con- the donation of Constantine is thought to still be real. Right, right. He doesn't know it's a forgery yet. Yeah. But he's saying even if that is the case, the papal office is claiming authority from who? From a Caesar of Rome. Yeah. That is not where you look. That Ooh. is not a legitimate authority claim. Yeah. So that's pretty powerful that that forgery is being debunked while it's still thought Ahead to be its, real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, four important articles concerning the Pope and the Cardinals. Um, affirmed that the Roman pontiff is not the head of a particular church unless he is predestined by God, and his authority is null and void unless his life and conduct be conformed to Christ's law, nor are they truly cardinals who refuse to follow in the steps of Christ and the apostles. So they're basically saying the proof is in the pudding. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Jan Hus is saying, look, you're either obedient to Christ or you are not. If you are mm-hmm. not, I don't care what title you have. I don't care if you're the Pope. I don't care if you're a Cardinal. I don't care if you're a Bishop. None of that matters. So he is basically taking the axe to the root, if mm-hmm. you will, John the Baptist imagery. Uh, well, Christ will take the axe to the root, but John says it, to the to the whole system. Mm-hmm. He's saying if you don't do the things of Christ, you have no authority because authority comes from Christ himself. You know, it's interesting because when we think about the Reformation, for those of us that haven't studied it, we think Martin Luther, 
nailed some stuff to a door and and he said all this kind of stuff. But this was being said by people long before yeah. him. In fact, let me let me let me the issue of conscience was kind of hinted at earlier, but it's mm-hmm. so profoundly important. Let me say let me read this. Hoos was an innovator whose statement struck at the root of church authority, the rule of belief and action he placed in the scriptures as interpreted by the individual. Yeah. From our standpoint, the principle he was contending for was the right of the individual conscience in the presence of the open Bible. There you go. And those who opposed to us at his trial were saying the exact opposite. They refused to defend the right of individual conscience. They refused to – they didn't even argue about the Bible. In hmm. fact, they essentially laughed at him. In, in fact, at his trial, for example, whenever he would try to defend himself, he was accused of sophistry and using fancy words and defending mm-hmm, himself. Mm-hmm. But whenever he would remain quiet because he realized what's the point, they accused him of not defending himself. Well, even so, Jesus did that. So. E- exactly. Very, but you'd have to read your Bible to know that. I mean, and that's where you kind of get to a point where you where you read this stuff and you're you're you don't want to draw too many parallels between the trials of someone like Wycliffe and Hus to Christ. Yeah. But but there are some. There are you kind of get the feeling that there are strongly demonic forces working against these men. Yeah. Because the hatred of the Bible is so obvious and intense. I don't know how you miss it. Well, and I'm so. just thinking about I understand why the people in church leadership would hate him because he's coming at their all of the stuff that they have, their power, right. their control, their money. But the people just the regular Joe Schmoes in the Bohemian countryside, mm-hmm. you would think would like what he was saying. And they did. Okay. By and large. He was he was very popular. Okay. And so and and there there are issues, and we'll we'll get to this very quickly. Let me just say one there is this one kind of famous tradition. Hoos, by the way, means goose. Oh and, and so yeah. What a silly um, hoose. And so there is a tradition, whether it's said or not, but as Hoos was burning, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but he says, Today you are burning a goose, but probably uh, uh, but 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 later, uh, but out of my ashes will be born a swan, and people say that's a prediction of Luther. Hmm. You know, I'm like Luther is the most rough dude ever. Like he's not, <laughs> not a very he's, good swan. Yeah, but anyway, but just, I, if I didn't mention that tradition, it would be silly because that's actually one of the first things people know about Hus is that he he said from the goose comes this swan later. Whether huh. he was, I don't think he was a prophet, so I think that's silly. But that definition of the church, you know, basically, let's just let's just kind of cut to the chase because I know we're going a little bit long. But the bottom line is that um, he was he was really taking the axe to the root. It was a question of authority, and he never had a chance because he was using the Bible as his authority, which wasn't recognized by the church. And then how we're crazy back to that is tautology. that? I know it is. How crazy. crazy is that? And by the way, uh, let's see. Um, Luther wasn't that familiar with Hoost, and he wasn't familiar with Wycliffe at all, to, from what we can tell. But why would he be? They were they were heretics a hundred years before, mm-hmm. and he he assumed that they were heretics for most of his life as well. Yeah, until well, he was he, taught it, and, and... until he needed them. But when he actually studied, when he was accused of being a Hussite, and he was like, Who's I don't that? know what that is. Yeah. yeah. So when he actually started reading, he was like, Dang, yeah. I am a Hussite. It yeah, turns yeah, yeah. out, um, and so he be- Luther becomes a, a, an absolute champion of Hus. Hmm. And 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 defender of him. Long story short, Hus is burned at the stake. Jeez. He is. This is in 1415. This is at the. Uh, this is at the Council of Constance, which is a a city, a beautiful city in southern Germany. You can visit it today. The exact location of where Hus is burned, I don't think, has been preserved, from what I could tell. 
But there is an interesting kind of modern, very modern history in that city, which if someone just Googles it, they'll find it. There, And I didn't know this because this book was written before it even mentioned it. In that city, on private property, somebody erected this huge statue. Hmm. And in the one hand is... Of who's? No, of, oh. um, of this, uh, I think it's like a Greek, uh, you know what, I don't remember, but it's okay. a figure. Okay. And But in one hand... It's maybe Lady Justice or something. Okay. And in one hand is um, the 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 image the 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 papal uh, like uh, image. Like, okay. Like A icon. Symbol for... The symbol, yeah. And then in the other is the the kings at the time in in mm-hmm. in in Bohemia, who didn't you know who didn't defend Hus, hmm. and so it's a very pro Hus statue. But it's interestingly, it was only erected in like the last ten years. And hmm. it's basically against the church and against the the powers at the time. Hmm. And so someone put the money up for that. And I don't I think it's anonymous. So it's it's kind of interesting. So that's in the city of Constance, if in case anyone ever wants to go uh and see that. And um so he is burned at the stake, and as a result, we we mentioned at this trial as well, Wycliffe's b- bones are dug up and burned as well. Just and, for good and, measure. And, and both Make of sure their, he's dead, dead, dead. Both yeah. of their ashes are are, are scattered, so Jeez. there's no no place to visit where they're buried or anything. I'm guessing uh, they didn't get last rites. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so profound, by the way, back to the people. So profound was the impression Hus's death made upon the people that in Prague and in the villages, in church and on street, every man was distinctly for him or against him. Mm-hmm. A contemporary chronicler says, every household in Bohemia is divided, the wife against the husband, the father against the child, and the hosts against his guests. Interesting. Now, they did go after Hus's followers, so his death doesn't end it at all. Mm. They go into uh, Prague, and there's a lot of political machinations and a lot of characters involved in the church, but essentially, the uh, church now instructed uh, the archbishop in Bohemia to excommunicate rebellious prelates, priests, depriving them of their of their kings, and also all obstinate laymen of every decree, obstinate of every degree. Yeah. I think I'm one of those. <laughs> yeah. From the nobles down who are suspected of heresy. So basically, once the church says this is heresy, we're going to, you know, we're going to kill you for it, you, you, the followers have to stop as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that doesn't get to live on. And you did have what are called Hussite Wars. Jeez. So this is how crazy it gets. The country of Hus was now destined to be attacked by five, guess what word I'm about to say, crusades. They use the word crusade to go, the church did, to go into Bohemia to wipe out the Hussites. Jeez. We think of crusades as right. going into like Italy, you know, uh, uh, um, Israel, Holy Land, to get back mm-hmm. our, our designated, you know, our, our place of, of, of birthright or whatever. But that's how they that's how they viewed it. So... Uh, proclaimed one after the other by Martin V, beginning in 1420. They were summoned against the Crusades, against the Wycliffeites or Wycliffists, Hussites, and other heretics. The atrocities perpetrated were great and a misfortune of no less proportions than the Crusades uh, was that uh, the Taborite and Kalkstein parties were often at war with one another, which is to say that you ended up with different schools of Hussites. And and I'm not going to go into that. I did read some about this as well, but it basically becomes a bloodbath, and different schools of Hussites uh, actually go to war, and they all sort of uh, get wiped out at the end of the day. But jeez, the legend of Hus does sort of live on. Uh, obviously, as we talked about with Luther, 
And his teachings, you know, eventually do survive. And we would argue that his teachings were prophetic and, mm-hmm. and he ultimately was right and it took a long time, but ultimately his teachings do prevail. As, as we said, why aren't there more, you know, Hussites in modern day Czechoslovakia or I grew up Czechoslovakia, uh, the Czech Republic? Um, well, this is why. Because yeah. they, were, they were wiped out. They were purged. Yeah, yeah, they were purged. And so, and actually, wow. the Czech Republic is not a religious country at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really, I mean, it's a Catholic country, you know, by, by default. But uh, it doesn't have, uh, from what from everything that I've heard and what I can tell, it doesn't have even the religious uh, zeal of Germany, which isn't saying much, because it's not a very yeah. religious country either. So um, No, a lot of those European yeah. nations have become sort of post-Christian. Yeah. So, man, that's crazy that all of this was going on, and I had never heard of it until just a few days ago. Until I insisted <laughs> that we do this that series. That we do this series. That I was like, will that be interesting? How can we make it sexy? I mean, a bloodbath after a guy said something that we actually all agree with yeah. is pretty interesting. So, yeah. so well, thanks thank to all you those for doing who, all the research. Who gave their lives for, yeah. for us to live in. And I guess we're food. host sites. And basically, yeah, basically, we're we're Wycliffe. Let's just put that on our social media threads and just see what people say. Yeah, be like, what are you talking about? I like that. Um, well, uh, I hope that you guys learned something and um, found this interesting. And now, you know, we've wet the appetite to get to the name everybody kind of does know, Luther. But we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff that went down before, after, and around Luther and the rest of the Reformation. So stay tuned. Keep listening. Tell a friend. And until we see you again, or I guess you don't see us, you listen to us, but we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.